Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Um, do something a little bit different over the next three weeks. You all know that when you have a major event, uh, like an accident, a crime scene, the more eyewitness accounts you have, the better it is. And one of the things that strikes me as interesting is, and people raise this issue for a variety of reasons, but you know, when you come to the life of Jesus, isn't it interesting that there's not one account? There's not even two accounts. There's four accounts on the life of Christ. Why? Because you want to get as many perspectives as you can on his glorious life. And what I'd like to do over the next three weeks, I'd like to choose one particular event one that we actually, the last song we sang today, incidentally, was just perfect for what we're actually doing. I want to look at the crucifixion of Jesus from three different perspectives over the next three weeks. I mean, often when you hear the story of the crucifixion, what happens is you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you kind of smoosh it all together, which is fine. I, I'm not opposed to that at all. But what you'll find is when you read Matthew and Mark, it says something uniquely, it's all complementary, but it says something uniquely different than what Luke says and then what John says. So what we want to do today is look at Matthew and Mark. Next week, look at Luke. And the week after, look at John's Gospel. And when it gets done, what you have is this beautiful mosaic, this collage, if you will. And you pull back and you say, wow. Look at what God has done. But today, we want to look at Matthew and Mark's account. Father, as we've been praying so far, we just want you to be seen. Um, I pray you'll help me, Lord. It's, it's always daunting when you talk about the cross. Who, who can possibly expound it in a way that, that would honor you? I, we'll, we'll, I'll do my best, Lord, in light of your scripture. But Father, if we can just see Jesus, we will go away a different people. So Father, guide us through this study. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Philip Yancey did some work in the memoirs of World War II from, from a Frenchman's perspective. And Yancey says this as he looks at one of the memoirs that were written. He tells of a of an act of humiliation by the Nazi stormtroopers who had seized an elderly Jewish rabbi and dragged him to their headquarters. Then Yancey says this, In the far end of the same room where they drug this rabbi, two colleagues, two Nazis, were beating another Jew to death. But the captors of the rabbi decided to have a little bit of fun with him before they killed him. So they stripped him naked, and commanded that he preach the sermon he had prepared for the coming Sabbath in the synagogue. The rabbi asked if he could wear his yarmulke. And the Nazis, grinning, agreed. It would add to their joke. The trembling rabbi proceeded to deliver in a raspy voice his sermon on what it means to walk humbly before God, all the while being poked and prodded by the hooting Nazis and all the while hearing the last cries of his neighbor at the end of the room. Yancey says this, When I read the gospel accounts of the imprisonment, the torture, and the execution of Jesus, 
I think of that naked rabbi standing humiliated in a police station. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We want to look today at verses 26 to 54. And, and, and I want you to watch as we work through this text. This is a sobering text. I have no jokes for today. I, it just doesn't seem appropriate. But as we work, walk through this initial section, verses 26 to 50, I, I want you to see the threads that kind of move back and forth in this passage. You will see interpersonal humiliation that will just make you angry as we work through this text. You will see physical torture that I can't paint with you in words. I'll try, but I'll fail miserably, no doubt. And you will see spiritual abandonment, which again, I don't know how I can fully explain to you. I'll try. I'll make a human attempt at the whole thing. And it's a deeply sobering text, but watch the humiliation from others. The physical pain and the spiritual pain that are all woven together. Verse 26, the Bible tells us that Pilate released Barabbas to them after having Jesus scourged and he delivered him to be crucified. The scourging is mentioned in three of the gospel accounts. Luke, interestingly enough, doesn't mention it. Matthew and Mark put it at center stage. And for us, You can read the word scourging, read it quickly, and just kind of move on in the story. But the original readers, the audience, they knew what that entailed. And actually, if you've ever seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ, it's one of those movies that you can watch once, and it's very hard to watch it again. Is that true? I mean, if you've seen it, you you have to fast forward through that scourging part. Because it was a bloody, terrible thing. I mean, and, 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 and the Romans did it for a variety of reasons. They did it to torture. They did it also sometimes to make the death come more quickly when you're going to be crucified, which is probably what's going on here. But it was, it was humiliating. It was painful as that bone and that metal would just go deep into the skin and just tear and rip. And yeah, Jesus would have been bloody when it was all said and done. Terrible thing. And Matthew, right up front, even before talking about the crucifixion, both he and Mark say Jesus was scourged. Then notice, notice in verse 27 to 31. In the midst of all that, he is in incredible pain, folks. I mean, his back is just torn open. His legs. And what do they do? Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off, put his garments on, and led him away to crucify him. Don't you read that and say, I I do. 
I read this passage and I say, leave him alone. I mean, he's gone to the cross to die for the sins of the world. You scourge him. He's incredible pain. And then you mock him as the king. And here's the thing. He was the king. And at any moment, he could have stopped all of it. But they would mock him and they would spit in his face. They would beat him with the rods. They would put the crown of thorns in his head. They would do all these things as they looked at him. And he took it for us, folks. But the, but the interpersonal mocking and humiliation, it just makes your blood boil, doesn't it? It doesn't seem right. Why can't this just be a, a quiet death? Matthew paints a picture of interpersonal humiliation coming from the soldiers. One right after another. That then brings us to the cross. Look at verses 31 and 32. They led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. You know why? I mean, in antiquity, sometimes you see these movies and they, they have the cross beam and the vertical beam all together and Jesus is carrying it to the cross. It's not the way it was in antiquity. A man would carry his cross beam to his execution. But Jesus was so weak at this point from the scourging that he couldn't do that. And so they, they, they found Simon and they said, you, come, come and carry it for him. And so the picture painted for us is incredible weakness. The God of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is weak and drained. And, 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 and so they, they constrict Simon to carry his cross. And they take him to the place of the skull. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this. Look at verse 33. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, just in the Aramaic, it means the place of the skull, which means place of the skull. They gave him wine to drink. Let me just stop for a moment. Um, the church where I attend and the seminary that I go to is called Calvary Baptist Theological Seminary. You see Calvary everywhere, don't you, in our day? I mean, and it's wonderful. I mean, we, we, we love Calvary. There's just something about it. But what if I told you that... Um, I teach at Skoll Baptist Theological Seminary. You know, the word Calvary occurs one time in the King James Version in Luke 23. And you know what it means? It's the Latin word for skull. And for whatever reason, the King James always translated into the English skull in the other accounts. But for some reason, Luke 23, they transliterated the Latin word, which means skull, into English, Calvary. And we latch on to that and it brings us so much joy. But I really do teach at Skull Baptist Theological Seminary. The skull. I mean, you'd think I'd sadistic if I'd name something after that, wouldn't you? But that's what Calvary means. It is a place of death, plain and simple. And there... That place that looked like a skull. Men died. And they crucified them. When they crucified an individual, 
Crucifixion, best we can tell, comes from the Phoenicians, and the Romans kind of took it over. The Romans loved crucifixion because it was a way that you could make people suffer for a long time before they died. And they could become an example to everybody else. This is what happens if you violate Roman law. So they loved it. They used it all the time. Matter of fact, they perfected it. And what they would do, as you know, they would put a man on, on that cross. They would bend the knees, right? And, and the idea is, and sometimes they would put ropes on, but sometimes they would put nails in. And what would happen is, a guy, as he's on the cross, he would pull up, catch his breath, and then what would happen, because you can't hold yourself very long, you would jump back and pull back up, and back down like this. And the Romans sometimes would leave people on the cross for three days. They could live for days. They would just keep, and even sometimes the wine that they would give them would be enough to just revive them, to extend the pain as long as possible. And that's exactly what they're going to do to Jesus Christ. They're going to put him on the cross. Now, they're going to try to hasten this one up, because Sabbath is coming. So they, they got by 6 o'clock, they got to try to move this thing along. So it's not going to go on for days and days. It's going to be shortened this time. But they, they do that, and, 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 and you, you know, we've learned from John's account that they broke the, the, the legs of the, uh, of the other two. And the reason they did that is because what happens if your legs are broken? You can't pull yourself up anymore. And you would suffocate more quickly. I mean, so, so crucifixion was a terrible thing. Come in here, if I have a necklace on, has a cross on it, we applaud. If I had a hangman's noose, uh, an electric chair on the end of it, you'd say that guy is wacky. But the cross was a terrible way to die, folks. It, it was what Rome designed to make it long and hard and painful. And so Jesus is crucified at the place called the skull. Verse 34, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. Now it's interesting because you're going to find out as we read in here a little bit later, he does drink, but here he doesn't. You know what the difference is? This particular concoction is a sedative. And a sedative is meant to, to lessen the pain. What fascinates me when I read this passage is our Lord refuses even a sedative on the cross. He will face the pain to its full. He will be conscious and clear through the entire process. Isn't that amazing? Notice what it goes on to say. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to watch over him there. And they put up above his head the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So what you find here in verses 35 to 37 is what the soldiers do with Jesus. You know what they do with Jesus? They do what they do with every other criminal. You uh, get a couple bucks off of the clothes he's wearing. You watch him because if anything happens to him, if he happens to, if for, every, if for any reason, if he got off that cross and escaped, you have to pay the penalty. So you watch him there. That's what they do. 
So it's their job. They're watching them. And what you find then, is this is just an ordinary thing to them. And they will put the sign up. Yeah, he says he's king of the Jews, whatever. And all they do is just do what soldiers do. Because these soldiers have done this for years and years and years. Here is just another criminal getting what he deserves. That's all they thought. One other thing. I failed to mention it at the beginning, but you're going to watch as we go through this. If I would have thought about it, I thought as we were getting up to sing and everything, I, I forgot to tell Tim this because it would have been perfect. I could have had you read this. It was really dumb on my part. Do me a favor. This afternoon, go back and read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a, is a lament psalm of David. And, and, and what you find as you actually read through it is, what was true of David was much more true of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there are two quotes that come directly out of that passage found here. And there's two other allusions, references, that come right out of Psalm 22. If you read Psalm 22 and then you read Matthew 27, you're going to say, whoa, like way back there, God was already pointing to this. Yeah, that's, that's exactly correct. So the soldiers treat him like just an ordinary criminal to be expected. In verses 38 to 44, though, again, this just bugs me. Because here Jesus is on the cross, and I want to cry out and say, would you please let him alone? He's paying for the sins of the world. And what we find, Matthew will tell us from 38 to 44, that everybody mocks him while he's on the cross. Look what verse 38 says. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him. This is just the normal Jew, wagging their heads saying, Hey, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Jesus had said much earlier in his ministry, speaking of his own body, that you know what? Um, if, you, if you destroy this temple, speaking of himself, I will, rise it, I, I will raise it up again in three days, speaking of his resurrection, right? Well, Jews hearing that said, oh, right, so he's going to like destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And so the rumor that kind of went around is Jesus is going to destroy it. Three days later, it's going to be, it's going to be um, raised up. And so, so that's kind of the rumor that had gone. Jesus never said that like that. And so they stand here at the cross. And they're looking at him. And they're saying, hey, mighty worker. If you can do all that, at least you could come down from the cross. If you are the son of God, right? And they're just mocking him. And the Bible says this happens with person after person. They're walking by and they're just, hey, there he is. Hey, son of God, come on down. You can do the temple thing, right? Come on down. And just one right after another. The leaders aren't any better, are they? Notice what they do in verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. 
Verse 43. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. See what they're doing? They're saying, weren't you the great miracle worker that could save one individual after another individual after another individual? Then do save yourself and we will believe in you. Would they believe in him if he would have come down off that cross? Not in your life. But they're, they're hurling attacks at him again. And what's so fascinating to me is this. Notice verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God or let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. If you go back and read Psalm 22, that is a direct quotation from Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, as David is lamenting, he says, there are other people that say, hey, if you trust in God, let God deliver you now. And in that context, these were the enemies of the anointed one. Do you see? And you know what happens in this passage? By them saying what they say to Jesus, they take the place again of the enemies of the anointed one. They do the exact same. They think they're mocking him and they've got something on him. All they're doing is living like those enemies of David hundreds of years before. It's amazing. And then notice what happens here in verse 44. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. Now we know what's going to happen with one of those criminals, but not from Matthew's account. Matthew doesn't tell us about that at all. All he tells us is that as Jesus hangs on the cross, if he looks to his side, there are two robbers who are mocking him. If he looks at the people passing by, they're mocking him. If he looks at the soldiers, they have no time for him. And if he looks at the leaders, they're mocking him. So all around Jesus, Matthew tells us, Jesus is being humiliated by the group. That brings us to verse 45 to 50. And folks, it is here that everything else that Jesus has faced pales in, compar in, in comparison. Notice what the text says. Now, from the sixth hour, which would be noon, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour, which would be three o'clock. And about the ninth hour, after that, those three hours of darkness, which is indicative of the darkness of the moment, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, again, from Psalm 22, verse 1, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, what does that mean? Now, was Jesus really wondering, hey, God, why are you doing this? I mean, do you think that Jesus like, didn't know? Like, hey, I, why am I going? No. Clearly Jesus knew, right? You go back and you read the Gospels. Jesus has already said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. They're going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the tomb. So, no, it wasn't like Jesus was on the cross thinking like, 
whoa, God, like, why is this all happening? Now, you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus there says, Father, if you can, please take this cup of wrath away from me. But you know what, Lord? Not my will be done, but thine. And in that moment, what he was saying is, I will take the fullness of your wrath upon me to pay for the sins of the world. So Jesus knew why he was on the cross. When he was with the disciples in the upper room, he says, this cup represents my blood, which will be shed for you. So no, no, no. Jesus wasn't really saying, like, God, I don't know what's going on here. Clearly he knew, right? No, this, this is an expression of how Jesus felt being abandoned by God. Now, how does that happen? How does the Father abandon the Son? What We often talk about the fatherlessness of the Son on the cross. Or as Maltman says, also, there's also the sonlessness of the Father on the cross, isn't there? But even better, I like the way Philip Yancey says it. Yancey says, in Matthew, we find Jesus crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? And Yancey asks the question, I wonder what God the Father cried out when his son cried out. We don't know. But what we find is this incredible sense of abandonment. C.S. Lewis said this. Listen to this. The hiddenness of God perhaps presses most painfully on those who are in another way nearest to him. And therefore, God himself made man will of all men be by God most forsaken. Look, if I'm driving home today, some guy drives by me and almost cuts me off and mistreats me and says something unkind. Eh, you know, whatever. I can get over that rather quickly. But if I go home today, my wife comes up to me and says, I'm walking out. I'm done with this marriage. That affects me totally differently, doesn't it? Because of this relationship I have with her. And the point here is, for, for, for God the Son to feel abandoned by God the Father when all He has known is sweet fellowship from eternity past to eternity in the future, folks, that is the hardest kind of abandonment, isn't it? You know what I love about this? He was abandoned so that you and I would never have to be. Isn't that what the cross tells us? And so Jesus is willing to become sin for us. To take on our curse. So that we could go free. And this is the worst part of the cross. As Jesus bears the sins of the world. And it feels abandoned by God the Father. Sad insult to injury, though. Notice how the people respond to all this. I mean, nobody looks back and says, wow, look what Jesus is doing for us, do they? No, no, look what happens instead. Immediately, verse 48, verse 47. And, and some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, saying to themselves, this man is calling for Elijah. I mean, they heard Eli, Eli, and they're thinking, well, he doesn't mean God. He must mean Elijah. So, so hey, I think... He's calling for Elijah. You know, and the Bible does talk about in Malachi something about Elijah coming and 
hey, what, what, cool, like, what's that? Huh? And that's kind of what's going on. Notice, notice, notice what they do. Immediately, one of them, one of the soldiers, ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. And this kind of a concoction was not a sedative. It was something instead to wake you up a little bit. And my guess is this guy's thinking, hey, I'm going to give him some of this because when he'll get it, he'll perk up a little bit and we'll find out what this Elijah thing is all about. He's curious. And in this case, Jesus took it, right? It was different. And then notice, but the rest of them, verse 49, the rest of the soldiers probably, said, no, no, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. So he puts it up, and the other guy said, wait, wait, not, not too fast. Let's, let's play with this a little bit. And here's your sense getting that, reading that whole thing. Jesus is crying out to God as he bears the sins of the world. Father, or he doesn't say father, he says, God, God, I, I just feel this abandonment as I'm paying for the sins of the world. And everybody else is just kind of looking around saying, hey, that's interesting. Hey, what do you think that means? Hey, let's see. Huh? Well, let's see. Is he really going to come? Even in that moment, folks, they can't leave him alone. They can't let him, as he's paying for the sins of the world, quit mocking him. But they do. And the text then goes on to say this. And Jesus cried out again, verse 50. If you want to know the content of that, you have to either look at Luke or John's account because Matthew and Mark don't tell us. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He willingly died, folks. He gave his life. They would not take it from him. In the beginning... I read you that account of the rabbi that was mocked by the Nazis and eventually killed. Nancy says, well, you know, when I think of that, I think of Jesus. And, 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 and I, I want to say yes, yes, to a point. But in actuality, they're actually quite different. Because that man suffered and he died under those Nazis. And what came of it? He died, and others died, and they continued to die. This suffering was totally different, though, wasn't it? Notice what happens right after the death of Christ. I'm not even going to have to get to the resurrection. Matthew can't wait. He's already going to lead into it. Notice what it says. Look, uh, look at verse 51. And behold... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now look, if you're going to tear a thick, this is a thick curtain. If you're going to tear that, tear that, would you do it from the top to bottom or bottom to top? You'd do it from the bottom to the top, wouldn't you? I mean, that's how it works. Why top to bottom? So there was no question who did it. And so these individuals who had been mocking and saying, hey, you think you can do stuff with the temple, ha, 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 whatever. Right as Jesus dies, God says, you know what? That old system is gone. Something new has come. 
There will now be access right into my presence. No more curtains. No more limited access because the one who died has changed everything. And that temple which you worship in a few decades will be gone. But it's already gone as far as God's concerned because that veil has been torn in two. From top to bottom. See, God doesn't even wait to the resurrection. Matthew doesn't even wait to the resurrection, man. He just wants you to know this was not a wasted death. There was, there's a, there was an old view of liberals. It was the dumbest thing. Tim remembers this and, and when we studied in seminary. Some of these liberals come up with the craziest views. He said, Jesus' death didn't accomplish anything. It just shows us that he was a nice guy who died, and it would be kind of like somebody running off of a pier saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, as he jumps into the water and drowns. That wasn't his death. That may have been some concoction, some liberals view somewhere. This death accomplished something, folks. And soon as he dies, the veil is torn. Notice what happens then. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. He doesn't even wait. Now look, when those tombs were opened up, did they come out yet? No, not yet. But they're ready to. So, so, so. God is saying right up front, look, I haven't even gotten to the, to, the, to the resurrection yet. And what would come right before Jesus' resurrection? An earthquake. So here we have an earthquake giving way to open tombs, which is nothing but a precursor of what is coming on Sunday. Do you see? I mean, it just, it just all kind of works together. And, and so right off the bat, Jesus dies. And God shakes the earth to say, this is something that you've never seen before and I'm going to give you a foretaste of what it's going to be. And by the way, that old system, it is gone. Plain and simple. Notice what he goes on to say. One of the guards, one of the soldiers, the centurion who was in charge of all this, one of the ones who was just kind of sitting there and watching this whole thing, as he sees now what is happening? What does he say? Look at it. Now the centurion, verse 54. And those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and they said, truly, this was the what? Son of God. Now think about this, folks. What was the attack against Jesus earlier by the Jews passing by and the religious leaders? If you're the Son of God, hey, Son of God! And here is a pagan man who has seen hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions. And when he watches this whole thing, he doesn't care what they said. It's very obvious to him. This is the Son of God. Now, did he understand what all that meant theologically? Probably not. But his statement was correct, folks. And it's God's way of saying, right, Matthew wants you to know, this death was not a wasted death. This was not a pure tragedy. Years ago, 
And I don't know when it stopped. I think maybe sometime in the 90s. Remember ABC's wide world of sports? The wide, wide world of sports. Jim McKay, I think, was the guy. Come on there. And, and they always showed this picture. Remember that, that poor skier? I don't know his name, but poor guy. And they just come down. I mean, I must have seen that a hundred times. That poor, you, know, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay, okay. And it would always come out, and they always say, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Do you know the cross turns that statement on its head? Because the cross is about the agony of victory. And, and for the enemies of the cross, it is the thrill, they think, of defeat. So that whole thing is turned on its head in the cross. And this, Matthew wants you to know, and Mark wants you to know this, more than you find in Luke and John. Suffering is there, absolutely. But they want you to know something more than anything else. This was pure agony for Jesus. As he's humiliated. And as he's physically suffering, and even more so as he's spiritually abandoned by the Father, whatever that means. But this was an ag agony of victory. Because everything Jesus said he would accomplish was accomplished through his pain and suffering. Isn't that great? Now, next week we're going to read Luke's account. Luke's going to emphasize some different things about the cross. I can hear anything about my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not in Luke, not in John, not there. Only Matthew and Mark, that's it. So Luke, Luke is going to give us a little bit of a different perspective. But, but as we come into this, it, it's what we sang. The power of the cross. I mean, it's just so perfect. It was, it was suffering that was effective. It accomplished the mission. What's that mean for us? It clearly means, if you've never become a follower of Christ, you need to come. Cannot possibly look at the cross and not see that God has loved you. Could Jesus have come off the cross when they said, hey, if you're the, if you're the Messiah, come down. If you're the Son of God, come down. Could he have? Yes, but he wouldn't. Because if he would come down, he couldn't have saved us. He couldn't have saved himself and, and us at the same time. So he chose to save us. By staying on the cross. You cannot stand before God and say, God doesn't care about me. He has done everything to bring you to himself. Believers, don't we get lost in some of the most trivial things through the week? I mean, Paul tells us, when he thinks of the cross, it shapes everything he does. We love him because he first loved us, John tells us. And Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me. Paul says, all of my life is consumed with a God who has loved me. When I look at myself sometimes, I get upset because my, i got to plunge my toilet or my sink is all clogged up. From last night, I was fishing out hair from my sink. I don't I got a bunch of girls and I just from my sink, the only way to do it, I have this concoction. I go down like it's just bad. It's bad stuff. And you know, it's part of life. I gotta do that kind because of, I told my wife yesterday, I said, honey, I'm going fishing this afternoon. She said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And down there again. There we go. But 
and, and sometimes, you know, life is about those kinds of things, isn't it? And, and, and I, I, somebody hurts me at church, or somebody says this, or something, and I just kind of get, it's me. And, and then a passage like this just kind of breaks through and says, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about the cross. It's about your loved. Live all of your life just loving Him. Let Him shape everything you do. Your marriages, your parenting, your workplace, plunging toilets, the whole thing. Isn't that true? So that in my deepest moment, it brings me hope. And it brings me joy. And it brings me perspective. That's what the cross is to do. It also moves me to share this great story with others. How can I believe that and not tell you? It's the greatest story, folks. It's our story. The cross, it's about the agony of victory. Let it shape everything we do. Father, thank you.